Every household should be outfitted with a, with a dilute iodine nasal spray or the know-how how to make one just using a, you know, a bottle of generic uh, a betadine, a few drops in some salt water will work. Commercial preparations, Cofix RX, uh, betadine, even xylitol-based products can be used uh, both acutely and chronically. You can add iodine to them like clear. And then scoper Listerine. And when someone gets one of these disease X viruses, boy, do this every four hours and knock down the amount of virus that's in the nose and mouth so the body's own immune system can fight it off. Well, hello, everyone. This is Rebecca Hardy, president of Texans for Vaccine Choice, coming with a extra special episode of TFBC Shock Callers. I'm so honored to be uh, joined today by Dr. Peter McCullough. And uh, good morning, uh, Dr. McCullough. Good morning. Okay, I'm going to... I. I I am sure that 99% of our listening audience is very aware of who you are and um, and everything, but I am going to read a little bit of your bio just so that those that may not know are um, introduced to just a personal hero of mine, Dr. Peter McCullough. So you are an internist, a cardiologist, an epidemiologist. You hold numerous degrees. You manage uh, common infectious diseases, as well as cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, you are broadly published on a range of topics in medicine, and your peer-reviewed works are far-reaching and cover a wide range of topics. You've been a commentator on the medical response to the COVID-19 crisis on numerous news channels, and you've testified multiple times at the U.S. Senate, the European Parliament, and in legislatures across the state, including Arizona, Colorado, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and of course, our dear home state of Texas. Um, you have had years of dedicated academic and clinical efforts in combating the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and in doing so, you've re reviewed thousands of reports, participated in scientific congresses, group discussions, press releases, and you're now considered among the world's experts on COVID-19. So I, again, want to just state what an honor it is to give you a warm TFBC welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I know. And I've just had such a pleasure getting to do a few events with you. I um, And to share a stage with you has truly been a blessing of my lifetime. And um, I, I just want to make sure that our audience that despite all those credentials, that I just want to paint this picture, that instead of applauding your heroic efforts to speak to um, kind of against the narrative, to save lives, to discuss the, you know, just common sense early treatment, that instead of being applauded for that, the medical community and government officials really kind of locked arms to retaliate against you over the last three years. And I just want to make sure that our audience understands just the the persecution that you've been through and that you have stood strong. You have, it almost, it seems just watching you from afar, it just seems like that fuels you. It drives you to do, to be bolder, to be braver, to speak out more. And so um, I, and that's just what I just said, barely scratches the surface of what you've been through the past three years. And so I just, want to say thank you. I mean, you, this is a, you are a doctor that has an unblemished career and, you know, your board scores and all of that. I mean, it's just, um, they're, um, they're, they're perfect. And here we are, um, having, uh, you've been, uh, your board certifications that have been at risk. And I think that's kind of where I want to go right as my first question is just, how are you, you know, how's your stamina? You know, I, I mean, I, I, I think I've told you before that I, I pray for you and I say, you know, Lord, just bubble wrap the truth tellers, you know, keep them, you know, preserve them. And so just tell me how you are on a very personal level. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Uh, you know, I feel well rested, fit, healthy. I'm in independent practice in McKinney, Texas, internal medicine and cardiology. And 
And while I have been critical of the government and uh, and health system responses throughout the pandemic, I you know I've worked very hard and I've offered constructive solutions to problems, including the very first published, widely utilized uh, treatment protocol, multiple drugs in combination to help patients avoid hospitalization and death, the McCullough Protocol, acute treatment. Uh, I've now uh, published two peer-reviewed papers on the first detoxification protocol for helping patients actually um, be relieved of the risk of these vaccines, uh, COVID-19 vaccines and the spike protein in their body. So, uh, you know, I've been really a part of the solution and it's been a mixed picture from the from the government. So, for instance, you know, I've been um, <clears throat> the lead witness and a co-moderator in three large, long U.S. Senate sessions. I've just testified in Congress and the, and the House of Representatives side uh, on January 12th, 2024. I mean, there aren't other doctors at academic institutions who've come to Washington and, you know, given testimony to the opposite. There's never been a chief of medicine who came to Washington and said the vaccines are safe and effective. Hasn't happened. There hasn't been another uh, chief of medicine or chief of infectious diseases come to Washington and said they have a better treatment approach for COVID-19. So it really has been mixed. Uh, I think the only uh, residual outstanding issue is the American Board of Internal Medicine has taken issue uh, with my uh, uh, Senate testimony, particularly my Texas Senate testimony, and they've gone through their COVID misinformation policy and, uh, you know, and have made a determination against me. And then, you know, I've appealed and uh, the appeal of my case continues uh, for years now. And you know, I continue maintenance of certification in internal medicine. I've taken four of the board exams uh, over the decades and I've done fine. The same thing with cardiovascular disease. My Texas uh, license has never been a- an issue or have been at risk. So it's been a mixed picture because I've been evidence-based. I have over 70 peer-reviewed papers on the COVID-19 pandemic. I am the only public figure who cites the data with first author and publication consistently on interviews. No one does that. When I was on Capitol Hill recently, Rebecca, I challenged the uh, Congressional Committee because uh, I had just testified after Dr. Anthony Fauci, and I cited dozens of papers during that testimony. And uh, I challenged the, the panel. I said, I bet Dr. Fauci didn't cite a single paper. And they said, Dr. McCullough, you're right. He didn't cite a single source of piece of information. So the, the difficulty that any board would have is because I cite the information, we're just citing published papers. Let's talk about them. No one wants to talk about the data. Remember, there's no such thing as misinformation or disinformation in clinical medicine. It doesn't exist. Uh, It recently became a mesh term uh, in a search engine, PubMed. And I think that's wrong because uh, it's a propaganda term. Misinformation came into the medical literature around 1500. It was extensively used in Nazi Germany uh, as a propaganda tool against people. People should understand that misinformation is is a bad word to say, uh, and it shouldn't be used ever in any conversations. It's a propaganda term. Same thing with disinformation. And um, and then it became word of the year in Washington Post 2018 before COVID because it was used in partisan politics, this kind of dirty politician trick. So now we see, you know, meetings by major universities on COVID misinformation. American Board of Internal Medicine said its top objective is not to cure heart disease or cancer. It's actually to uh, battle misinformation. You can see how distorted things have become. Yeah. Well, and we are so appreciate your voice in this. And, you know, it's we shouldn't be afraid of, of of science debate. I mean, isn't that the whole foundation of science? And we have seen the other side just decide that uh, the narrative is the narrative and the studies um, can just go on the bottom of the desk. Okay, so let's let me ask you this. And that is this is probably the top question I get when I am you know traveling around and discussing, you know, this state of the state when it comes to vaccine choice in Texas. What is the latest research on the spike protein shedding? Is it happening? Can the unjabbed protect themselves? Are we 
ever going to be able to get away from this? What What is the research here? There's a, a lot of confusion around shedding. The author to quote is Dr. Helene Benoun, former INSERM scientist. She's in France. She studied this. She has multiple publications on this. Um, <clears throat> I think the data are most compelling that there's some low-level shedding or some type of immune rechallenge of the spike protein that can be sensed by actually women uh, who are in the uh, premenopausal years, and they can sense changes in menstruation around somebody who's taken a vaccine or has had recently had COVID. Uh, but it appears to be low level. I think it's at the level of the spike protein. Two papers by Hannah and colleagues demonstrate messenger RNA is in the breast milk. Now, we don't know if it gets you know, into the human, the, the babies um, through the intestines and into the human body of the, of, of the newborn or the suckling infant. Uh, but th those studies could easily be done. There was a paper by Zhang and colleagues from China in end of 2022, where they made a smaller fragment of messenger RNA just for the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. And they were able to stabilize it in an exosome, essentially a milk bubble, and then get that to cross the gastrointestinal tract of uh, mammals in, in the lab, an uh, 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 animals in the lab. And um, uh, in, in a sense, effectively immunize uh, a, a, an animal in the lab by, by drinking milk, three administrations of milk that was loaded with this messenger RNA. Uh, the, the answer is we don't know. There's never been a, a documented case of transference of spike protein or messenger RNA through blood transfusion. Never been a documented case through sexual intercourse. Um, and so there's still great unknowns uh, one of the more recent papers that caught my eye is by Brogna and colleagues who clearly have identified vaccine spike protein. So the, vac the, spike, the messenger RNA from Pfizer and Moderna installs the genetic code for the spike protein in people who take the shot, and they found circulating full-length Pfizer or Moderna spike protein, and they can identify it by a particular amino acid sequence um, that's artificial, uh, six months after the injection. Now, they found it in about 50% of those who took a shot six months after injection. So it makes sense if it's circulating in the bloodstream, it should be transmissible, at least the spike protein. Very good. Okay, can you talk us through a little bit, just this is just a very basic question, but can you explain how the COVID jabs work? And the context for this question is more kind of in opposed, opposed to the more, you know, kind of traditional childhood vaccines. How, how does it work and how was it designed I guess, to benefit your health. <laughs> well, let's, let's take the, the childhood vaccines. So they fall into three categories. One is just a protein th that uh, is a protein from a, an organism that uh, our body find, forms an immune reaction to, like the hepatitis B surface antigen. So this is a protein. It cannot give the child hepatitis B because it's not the, the virus and they form immunity. The same thing would be true for the pneumococcal vaccine or the uh, haemophilus influenza B vaccine, for, for instance. Those are just antigens, they're just proteins. The tetanus shot, everyone knows what a tetanus shot is. So it's a limited amount of protein, the body forms an immune reaction to it, and that's it. The, the duration of the protein being in the body is very likely just a few days because it's cleared by what's called the reticuloendothelial system. The next type is a killed whole virus. So a dead virus is administered, but it's killed. So it can't, it can't react. And the body just has to clear out the viral uh, pieces of the virus. Uh, and that would be an example would be the killed vaccine would be the uh, influenza vaccine, uh, the shot. And then the, the final type is live attenuated. Live attenuated is the virus is alive, but it can't really form real complete disease in a person. There, that virus has to live out its attenuated lifespan, which could be a week or two, and it forms a reaction. So the example there would be the, in adults, would be the shingles vaccine. That's a live attenuated varicella zoster virus, 14 times the dose, by the way, of the chickenpox virus, which is all live and attenuated. Yep. Those are the three sources. So when the COVID vaccines came out, there was a killed vaccine, just a killed whole virus vaccine in China. It was a company was Sinovac Coronavac, and it was relatively ineffective. It was used across China and widely in South America, Asia and India. 
there never was a live attenuated vaccine. And then the next type of vaccine was called the adenoviral vector vaccine. So now here is taking a different virus, loading the genetic code for the spike protein in the virus, uh, what's called a replication incompetent virus, uh, and then injecting that into the body. And that became the Janssen vaccine, the AstraZeneca Sputnik vaccine in, um, in Russia. And there, a virus dumps off the DNA payload into the body. That DNA goes into the human nucleus, makes messenger RNA for the spike protein, and then the spike protein is, is made within cells. So it carries virtually all the same dangers of messenger RNA vaccine. And that leads us to the messenger RNA vaccines, which are Pfizer, Moderna. Now, there's a normal piece of messenger RNA is used once it's disposed of in a couple hours. The Pfizer, Moderna vaccines uh, are synthetic, and they've replaced every single base pair of uracil. There's only four base pairs. They've replaced every uracil with what's called pseudouridine. That's what Carrico and Wiseman won the Nobel Prize for. And the pseudouridine effectively makes the messenger RNA indestructible. In addition, it has uh, what's called um, synthetic nucleoside analog caps that prevent the body from digesting it. And so the messenger RNA is passed from cell to cell to cell, and the body keeps making spike protein in almost a continuous fashion. We actually don't know if the messenger RNA is ever eliminated from the body. A paper by Castriuta found the messenger RNA circulating in the body for at least 28 days, as long as they've measured uh, Crossan and colleagues from Harvard found the messenger RNA stuck in the human heart. You can physically find it there because the heart demands a lot of blood flow. You can imagine a lot of the vaccine goes to the heart. And then, um, uh, and then uh, Rotkin and colleagues from Stanford found the messenger RNA stuck in lymph nodes of women who are getting lymph node biopsies in the axilla and breast area for at least two months. So this is very disturbing that the genetic code, no one's actually demonstrated the genetic code leaves the body. And if injections are taken every six months, I can tell you almost certainly the genetic material is accumulating in the human body, foreign genetic code for the spike protein, which itself was engineered and devised in the Chinese biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. Okay. Um, and then, uh, okay, that, let's talk a little bit about, um, is detoxing possible? What is the... What is the latest research about that? Are there specific adverse events that the, any sort of detox protocol works better on? And um, I mean, a concern I hear often is that since so many Americans took at least one dose, how does one reverse any damage for future potential mates? I mean, I'm going to be selfish and just think about my my teenage daughters. You know, how do we you know kind of reverse or protect them? In, in their future. Well, I'm unvaccinated. I'll just tell you, I didn't take the COVID vaccine. I didn't think it was safe and wise, and I didn't think it was clinically indicated, medically necessary. It was only studied over two months, had no long-term safety data, mm -hmm. and I just wasn't going to risk it in my body. No way. Um, but I think the unvaccinated seem to be a lot more worried about the vaccinated than the vaccinated themselves are. And um, what we know from the COVID Community States program from Northeastern and Harvard is about 75% of adults took a vaccine. Now it's mm -hmm. smaller among children, but that means a quarter of us didn't take the shot and 75% did. Now the COVID States program is a huge survey. I think it was over 20,000 people. They criticize the CDC. They say the CDC says 92% of people took a vaccine, but they point out the CDC was double counting and losing vaccine cards and starting new vaccine cards at the pharmacies. That's the the, the, the public program's a real mess. So it's about 75% took the shot, 25% didn't. Uh, the Biden administration has spent over a billion dollars on long COVID, studying long COVID. Now, they don't consider the vaccine at all in that billion dollars of research that was spent. But I can tell you in a paper by Dexner and colleagues from Germany, 48,000 Germans, most of the long COVID is actually due to the vaccine. People took the vaccine before or after. And if people don't take the vaccine and they get COVID, they're far less likely to have long COVID, particularly with the Omicron variant. So, so what we're talking about is vaccine injury, um, 
uh, long COVID. And so the term we used is, is called post-acute sequelae. That is, there's something that follows the acute infection or the vaccine or both. And the common syndromes are brain fog, ear ringing, um, uh, post-exertional malaise. People feel incredibly wiped out afterwards, skin and hair changes, hair loss, weight loss. Um, and then there's serious syndromes like chest pain, myocarditis, acceleration of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, POTS, posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, dizziness, blood pressure up and down, uh, hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke, Guillain-Barre syndrome, small fiber neuropathy, blindness, hearing loss, uh, blood clots, large blood clots like we've never seen before, arterial and venous blood clots. Uh, we've seen amputations. I've had patients require amputations um, uh, in the extremities when they've taken the shots. And then lastly, immunologic problems. Uh, the blood tests that we measure that turn positive, and this could be a couple years after the shot, are the ANA, the antinuclear antibody, the ANCA, antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibody, the anti-citrullated peptide, and the rheumatoid factor. So we actually check all four in our practice. And there's, there's a fifth emerging area, and that's a theoretical risk of cancer. You know, I laid all this out in uh, Congress on January 12th, 2024, and I told them the FDA tells us with genetic products, which are Pfizer, Moderna, Janssen, and AstraZeneca, that the regulatory window of concern, Rebecca, is five years so we have five years of concern. People say, I took the shot in 2021. Do I have anything to worry about? I said, well, we've got till about 2026 uh, to worry about. And we have seen new blood clots and cardiac arrests even two years after the shots now. So uh, it, it happens. We see it in clinical practice. So the Biden administration with that billion dollars came up with nothing, no protocols, no drugs, nothing and patients are frustrated. They go from center to center. They get lots of tests, expensive blood tests, imaging, but no therapy. So in the summer of 2023, myself, Dr. Brian Proctor is the lead. Uh, we published a, a two papers on what's now been copyrighted McCullough Protocol Base Spike Protein Detoxification. And the reason why my name is associated with them is mainly to try to anchor it so people can know what we're talking about. And we call it Base Spike Protein Detoxification because it is a centerpiece of which we can add additional drugs, but it's based on the theoretical uh, capability shown in preclinical studies of natokinase, a naturally uh, available supplement uh, to, to break down the spike protein, the same with bromelain, and then curcumin. doesn't break down the spike protein, but it actually works to reduce inflammation from the spike protein. So the doses are natokinase, 2,000 units twice a day, get this over the counter, bromelain, 500 milligrams a day, Curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day. Curcumin is usually combined with uh, black pepper extract, piperine, five milligrams to get it uh, absorbed. And these are starting doses. So we can escalate. The Chinese are working with much higher doses. This is now being used around the world. It's called McCullough Protocol Based Spike Protein Detoxification, minimum of three months. Most people need 12 months or more. But these symptoms start to improve under our direct observation. Very good. Very good. And what, um, what are the differences between um, the short and long-term side effects with both the shot and the illness? And what are your, what's your best advice on how to prevent or treat those, um, those side effects? I'm thinking that your, your protocol is probably your, the best one, but I guess I, I, this question, the person who submitted this question is really asking about, you know, the best, treatment for both long and short-term um, effects? I think the question gets to this issue of so many people have been through the illness and they're fine, and so many people have taken the vaccine are fine. How, how do we sort them out? Well, with the illness, uh, at most, it's about 15% of people who have long COVID just from the illness, and it's usually after hospitalization. Uh, mm -hmm. With good early treatment, virucidal nasal sprays and washes and and an oral multi-drug, multi-supplement approach, there's almost no long COVID now. It just, it's just not a, a concern. Uh, with the vaccine, we've gone over this, this really this panoply of, of complications that occur after the vaccine. They are due to the spike protein. I want to make that clear. There's a paper by Matthew Perry in, uh, from Australia. It's, it's called Spikeopathy. 
And it is, it's the spike protein. The body can't get rid of it. You know, there's certain proteins that the body can't get rid of. And the spike protein is one of them. The proteins from Lyme disease, Borrelia, Borgdorferi, we can't handle. Certain organisms live in our body for a very long time, like the syphilis organism. Now, the SARS-CoV-2 virus has been found to exist in the human body for a long time. At, at autopsy, in severe cases, the virus is alive and replicating months afterwards. And it's in all the tissues. So we know there there can be some opportunities. Uh, as we laid out in our most recent paper, it really depends on what the patient has in the blood test re results. We use base spike protein detoxification. Is there, if there's any evidence of continued infection, then we can use prolonged ivermectin or prolonged hydroxychloroquine. Remember that Paxlovid and Molnupiravir are not uh, approved for any type of long-term use. They're only about five days, so we don't use them in these prolonged kind of viral uh, uh, syndromes. And there's usually fever, rash, um, other, uh, you know, other evidence that there's an ongoing infection. And then if there's autoimmunity, if the ANA test is positive, there's joint aches, um, uh, things that go along with autoimmunity, the patients do respond to hydroxychloroquine as they do with systemic lupus and rheumatoid uh, arthritis. If there are pleural pericardial type of symptoms, we use colchicine, which is a drug that actually has activity against SARS-CoV-2 in the acute setting, and it's, it's standard of care for pericarditis and cardiology anyway. So we have a range of things that we do in order to help people get pro, uh, uh, um, better, but it's based on signals of benefit that we see in the literature. I don't prescribe anything uh, that doesn't have at least something I can refer to in the, in the peer-reviewed medical literature. Uh, you'll be uh, interested in a therapy I prescribed yesterday. It's, it's actually, there's one paper on it, and my clinical observation is it does uh, fit in the program. And believe it or not, that's a nicotine patch. You know, can you unpack that a little bit more? Because I have, I have heard and read some papers and articles about this a little bit. Tell me what the mechanism it, there is. Yeah, the observation's amazing. Do you know with acute COVID, it uh, was much milder in smokers. And we thought it was going to be just the opposite. It's much milder in smokers. And then long COVID, it virtually never occurs in smokers. I can't think of the last time I saw long COVID in a smoker. And so what was learned is that the spike protein is actually uh, damaging certain receptors on cells. And the nicotine seems to block that effect of the spike protein and receptors. Now, nicotine is addictive. And in smokers, we can use high-dose nicotine patches because we're trying to wean them from the addiction, like 21 milligrams a day topically. But with long COVID, we use typically 7 or 15 milligrams. And patients do improve. They report uh, improvement in brain fog, this generalized lassitude. Uh, and so as long as it's tolerated, there's not too much nausea or other, you know, constitutional symptoms, it's something we add to the program. It's very interesting. Another drug we add, again, it's based on one report, but if patients have uh, significant neuropsychiatric uh, symptoms, so we ask about brain fog and irritability, tinnitus, um, but we should actually ask about um, hallucinations. Some people develop hallucinations, uh, and that seems to respond to acyclovir, which is uh, an oral... Uh, antiviral. It's used for um, herpes simplex virus one and two, as well as zoster, but it seems to have some off-target antiviral effect. And in, in, uh, in, again, in a single report, and that's what we're basing this on, because the Biden administration, HHS, has done no randomized trials of anything useful to us. So we're, it's all based on clinical judgment and preliminary reports. Well, Again, thank you for for treating people with evidence-based medicine. What a what a concept! You know, one of the doctors on um, TFBC's medical advisory board sent me a recent study by Nakahara that found that all COVID vaccinated people have some sort of myocardial damage that appears to be permanent. Can you comment on that study? The Nakahara paper was striking, and you know, University of Texas at Houston. Dr. Jagat Narula was an author. This was a really one, just a Japanese-U.S. collaboration. So these are people getting PET scans for other reasons, okay, okay. largely malignancies. Uh, but they had 
a sizable number of people who took the vaccine, I think roughly 700. And then they had a control group of about 300 who didn't take the vaccine. And they had cardiac PET imaging. Now, PET imaging is normally looking for an area of the heart muscle that's not getting enough oxygen. That's the reason why I order it clinically. When the heart is getting enough oxygen, it normally uses free fatty acids as its metabolic fuel. But in the setting of ischemia, where there's not enough blood flow, the heart preferentially uses glucose. And what the PET scan identifies is 18-fluorodeoxyglucose, you know, radio-labeled glucose. The stunning finding of the Nakahara paper was virtually every vaccinated patient started, their heart started to prefer glucose over free fatty acids. And we infer that they didn't all have uniform blockages. This was a uniform effect in the left ventricles, mainly what we look at. And the unvaccinated had a normal pattern, stone cold normal. So in the Nakahara paper, they show an example of a normal person and then a vaccinated person, and it's strikingly different. Now, there's, there was gradations of how much FDG uptake there was, but of interest, those with a sore arm seem to have the most intense FDG uptake, the most abnormal PET scans. And, uh, you know, in concert with this, there's a paper by Schwab and colleagues, an autopsy paper, showing when there's myocarditis or heart damage, whether it's recognized or not, there's actually damage in the arm from the vaccine. The the two go along. So we don't know what this means. We don't know if this is damage or I think the better term is called a metabolic cardiomyopathy. But this may explain why some cardiac arrests occur after the vaccine and there's no myocarditis seen at autopsy. Mm. And we've seen cardiac arrests that occur and, you know, as the heart is sliced open, we can't find intense areas of inflammation. We now know from the Nakahara paper that the cardiac metabolism has changed. And maybe that is an explanation of why the cardiac arrest and the arrhythmia occurred. Okay. And is there any way to mitigate that post-vaccination? Are we still that emerging research? Emerging research. I mentioned the Crossan paper found the messenger RNA in the heart. They they didn't have a good stain for spike protein, but there was a ton of inflammation in the pe- in people who died after the vaccine. So I anticipate the spike protein's been there. Bollmeier and colleagues from Germany actually biopsied uh, young boys who had myocarditis in the hospital. They were alive, and the heart was loaded with spike protein. Loaded. Mortz uh, in a single autopsy report from Germany. This poor man in, in a senior center who died. Uh, the spike protein was intensely damaging the heart. And, and then a paper by Choi and colleagues showed that in some cases, a fulminant case of a young man who died just a few days after Pfizer, his heart was just basically essentially rotted out with inflammation due to the spike protein. And so now a very important paper was published by Hosher and colleagues. I'm the senior author demonstrating that the myocarditis is fatal. And this was published in the European Society of Cardiology Journal, very high-level journal. This was undisputed, peer-reviewed, published. And uh, this is a very important update to what the CDC tells Americans. The CDC says that myocarditis is rare, it's mild, and it's transient. And our research now suggests it's just the opposite. It's actually quite common uh, about 2.5% of people who take a shot have clinical myocarditis, that it's serious. Um, of those recognized cases, about 90% are hospitalized. You know, By definition, something that lands you in the hospital is serious. And it's not transient. Some people, it, it's fatal. So as we sit here today, these the cardiac arrests that are presented to us in public figures, sports figures, and others, uh, if they've taken the vaccine... Based on the published information, I think we should be cautious and conservative and uh, conclude that the vaccine probably played a role or may have been the direct cause of the cardiac arrest. Until proven otherwise, right? Until proven otherwise. Now, what can we do to mitigate risk? Uh, We hope the detoxification approach works. Now, I've been doing this for well over a year. I haven't had a single cardiac arrest or a single new blood clot or problem. Once we begin the detoxification process. People have to take these supplements, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin in between meals. Very important. Uh, I haven't had a single cardiac arrest once we detect myocarditis and we use a combination of colchicine, prednisone, and other drugs. Japanese 
are using uh, intravenous immunoglobulin or plasmapheresis. They haven't reported any recurrent arrests, uh, which is great news. I, I, I ran into pilot Bob Snow. I don't know if you remember pilot Snow. He had the cardiac arrest on the jetway um, uh, in, in DFW airport. And he had taken the Johnson and Johnson vaccine about two months earlier. You know, he had blamed the vaccine. He had a defibrillator put in. So I asked Pilot Snow a really important question. He's working out now, and he's he's uh, of course doing everything he can to you know recover. I said, "Has the defibrillator gone off? Has there been a repeat arrest?" He goes, "No, nothing." And uh, it's interesting. Uh, Buffalo Bills player Demar Hamlin. Uh, had what appeared to be a vaccine cardiac arrest. I, I think he's misattributed uh, this to uh, tackling the player. It didn't have anything to do with tackling the player. He actually had a vaccine cardiac arrest. And he's never denied uh, taking the vaccine. I told Tucker Carlson that on national TV, you know, the, a day later, and it's panned out. The, Bill, the Bills have lightly played him. Uh, most games, they, they sit him out. And he did, uh, you know, try to take a, a fake uh, punt play in the last game where they lost. That's about as much as he's done. But importantly, he has not had a repeat cardiac arrest. So if someone survives a vaccine cardiac arrest and they get appropriate treatment, I'm hopeful that they'll be fine. Uh, There's just one case that's out there that really bothers everybody, and that's the case of Oscar Cabrera Adamas. Adamas from the Dominican Republic. He played in the Spanish basketball leagues. Doesn't want to take the vaccine. So listen, I don't want to risk it. And uh, he was forced to take the vaccine. And uh, sure enough, he has a cardiac arrest on the floor while playing basketball. And he tweets out, he goes, listen, I got myocarditis from the vaccine. It, you know, almost like he knew this was going to happen. Yeah. Fortunately, he's resuscitated. He, he stays out a couple of years. And then he's on a medical grade stress test uh, with doctors around and EKG and everything. He actually dies on the stress test. They can't resuscitate him. I've actually never had that in my career. We've had cardiac arrest on treadmill, but we can always resuscitate because we have the defibrillator pads and the IVs and everything. So that case worries me that uh, people could sustain damage. They don't take a defibrillator like Damar Hamlin or like Adamas. And sure enough, an, a, a repeat arrest happens a couple years later. Right. And is it true that this um, the, the heart issues are being seen primarily in the younger males? Is that yeah. is that correct? And can you talk to me about like, I don't know quite how this phrases, but can you speak to the how there? As in, how does is it primarily affecting boys and especially younger ones? What's the mechanism? Well, myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle. Now, it occurred before COVID in the pandemic, and it's very rare, probably a couple hundred cases in the United States. And it can be due to Coxsackie virus. Uh, it can be due to, um, it can occur... It's, it's occurred, by the way, after the influenza vaccine. It's been reported. Uh, it's clearly occurred after smallpox vaccines. And um, uh, it, uh, it almost always affects men. About 90% of the time it affects men before COVID. And the peak age is typically in the 20s. And then it tails off from there. So there's something about being male, having probably high levels of testosterone, maybe being more athletic. It seems to afflict the athletes. Now, remember when the heart, when you're exercising, the myocardial blood flow increases about fourfold. So you get a ton of blood going through the heart. And maybe as vaccine material circulates, it accumulates in the heart. That's one uh, theory. So that's before COVID. Now bring in COVID. COVID itself does not cause myocarditis. This is very important. This was studied extensively during 2020 before the vaccines. Uh, the Big Ten Athletic League, uh, they studied 30% of, the, of all the college kids got COVID in 2020, 30%, because that's in the Big Ten study by Daniels and colleagues published in JAMA. And they searched thousands and thousands of athletes to see if they can find myocarditis. Could, you know, they, they came up with 36 putative cases None of them serious. None of them panned out. And they dropped the screening program. Uh, the Israeli military, U.S. military tried the same thing. So COVID doesn't cause serious myocarditis. There was some confusion because sick inpatients uh, can have an elevated troponin as they can with other illnesses. That's not myocarditis. So a false talking point came out and said that the illness causes way more myocarditis than the vaccine. I remember that. Yeah, so therefore we should give the vaccine and cause more myocarditis. That that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever 
uh, heard. So no, we don't worry about COVID, the illness and myocarditis, but the vaccine does. And the FDA and the CDC says it does. There's 800 papers showing the vaccines cause myocarditis. We've published that it's fatal. Uh, it's common in, in some of these papers. Now there's tens of thousands of cases. So the, the biggest case series before COVID was 500 cases. Now there's tens of thousands of cases in papers. And I, I see this on a regular basis in my clinic, but it is uh, uh, men and boys, military or college age. And it's really a shame because these military or college age kids, they were under mandates. So there was military mandates uh, where nearly everyone in the military was and these men at risk who didn't need the vaccine. So it wasn't medically necessary. It wasn't clinically indicated. They already had COVID by and large. Um, they were forced to take the vaccine. And the same thing is with college kids. Now the great unknown is who's received damage that we know about or don't know about and what's their risk of cardiac arrest later on? It's a very unsettling thought. And that leads me to my next question. Is there a way, and this question was actually submitted by another doctor on my medical advisory board, and it says she is wanting to know, uh, she has a family practice, and she wanted to ask you, is there a way to detect someone who is being affected by their vaccine and doesn't know it? Is there a lab or a test that shows that they should be doing something to you know, detox or prevent a potential future um, you know, adverse event? We're given no guidance from the societies, the uh, you know, Infectious Disease Society of America or American College of Cardiology, American College of Physicians or HHS or the Biden administration. None. There's no guidance. So I can tell you what I do in clinical practice. And, you know, it's based on my skill in the art in medicine. So I measure a cardiac troponin, which is the lead test for myocarditis, a blood B-type natriuretic peptide and galactin-3. These can look at acute and more chronic damage, a result of damage to the heart. I get an EKG. Uh, I do a bedside cardiac ultrasound, and I look to see if the heart chambers look like they're damaged or dilated, and I look for fluid around the heart because most of the myocarditis is actually myopericarditis. It involves the outer layer of the heart and the lining around the heart, the pericardium. And then I make a decision on cardiac MRI. If any of these tests are abnormal or there's persistent symptoms, ER visits, et cetera, um, abnormal heart rhythms that are detected, I get a cardiac MRI. Now, the MRI can rule in myocarditis with the finding of what's called late gadolinium enhancement. And it's striking how much damage has been seen. Jenna Schauer, in two papers, has studied children with COVID vaccine myocarditis. And I can tell you, a large area of heart damage is more than 15% of the left ventricle, according to our guidelines. She's reporting 20 and 30% areas of damage in children, which is extraordinary. And uh, the result of damage can lead to one of two things, heart failure later in life or cardiac arrest. And so in general, for other diseases, when there's more than 15% damage, we put in a defibrillator to try to protect them against having a cardiac arrest. So that's what I do clinically. And then I follow people over time if there is Abnormal, abnormal MRI to revisit that in a year and get a follow-up. Now, the heart can repair itself, and we'd like to see those areas of late gadolinium enhancement go away, but uh, there are several papers now uh, that have demonstrated, particularly in children, even at 9 or 12 months, the areas of damage are not going away. That COVID-19 vaccine-induced heart damage appears to be permanent. It's a sobering thought, Dr. McCullough. What about the mRNA technology? Is it permanently changing DNA? One paper by Alden and colleagues, Yang D. Marinus is the senior author, did demonstrate in a human hepatoma cell line, rapidly dividing cells, that in fact the Pfizer code, the center piece of it, was called the amplicon, was installed into human DNA relatively quickly, within six hours. Uh, now, this paper has not been disputed. Other labs have not confirmed it. So other preclinical models have not done this. But based on a single paper, which was convincing, I'm concerned that, in fact, Pfizer and Moderna, the code, or at least some of the code, is getting installed into human DNA. We don't know if this is cleared out and can be repaired or whether or not it's permanent. 
Now, we know other coat is permanent. For instance, if you get uh, chickenpox, for instance, the clinical illness, the coat is permanent. And even if you take a chickenpox vaccine, the coat is permanent. And we know that because people who take the chickenpox vaccine, they actually have a higher risk of shingles later on. So the chickenpox vaccine for those people causes shingles later on. Multiple studies show that. All right. Um, I This is my... Um, probably my last, you know, COVID vaccine specific question, but are there, is there any emerging, is there, or do you think there, will there be any um, independent studies regarding the mRNA jabs and the cancer rates that we're seeing? The first paper, I think that published convincing evidence that the the vaccine actually accelerated the cancer is by Kara Gokulis and colleagues. I'm senior author. And it was a man in his 50s. He took one messenger RNA shot. Within a few days, he had pain in his uh, facial area, quickly developed a facial and trigeminal nerve damage, and then a tumor, a basaloid cancer, probably arising from the parotid gland, invaded his, his brain and killed him. And this is what we call turbo cancer. So in a paper by Anguus and Bustus from University of Oregon, they've laid out what's called the multi-hit hypothesis of oncogenesis for vaccines. And and there are probably three mechanisms by which the messenger RNA vaccines may cause cancer. And, you know, they're genetic shots. People who took these shots should understand they've never had a genetic shot before. Cancers are problems in the genetic code. They create cancerous cells. It follows that any type of genetic shot could be cancer-causing. Now uh, we have this great concern. Uh, the horizon for a cancer to form is about five years. Now, let me say since 2021, every cancer registry in the world is reporting record new cases of cancer, every one. And the only thing that's changed in 2021 was the rollout of mass vaccination. It's hard to, it's hard to just wrap my brain around that. It really is. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit into the the future. So in your opinion, do you think um, there's going to be a next pandemic coming? And what do you think it will be? And how, what can we do to prepare? I do. Uh, Many have been writing about disease X, which is not a real disease yet. But Dr. Peter Daszak, who was a key co-conspirator in the creation of the COVID virus, He's at the EcoHealth Alliance. He worked with Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, the NIH, Dr. Fauci's uh, group at the uh, NIAID division, as well as Dr. Xi Zhengling in China. Those four actually created SARS-CoV-2. They created it in the Chinese lab. Peter Daszak in 2018 was writing about disease X. And then when the COVID virus came out of the lab in Wuhan, he said, well, here this could be disease X. Disease X is a futuristic disease that's created by man in a a biosecurity laboratory, and the same group is working on the defense for that, that is vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, therapeutics. So it's creating a biological threat and then creating an answer to it. And the spirit of this is that would, quote, get ahead of nature. Many many have said this is kind of like mad scientists that have really gone wrong here, that this is... Very dangerous, but in fact, there are disease X programs going all over. There's dedicated labs using gain-of-function research to make more infectious and more lethal viruses, bacteria, and fungi. That's what disease X is. Now, the WHO and the World Health and the um, uh, World Economic Forum is stating that we will have a disease X pandemic that is coming. They're having planning seminars for this, just like with COVID. You know, in 2012, DARPA, our research unit of the military, said they were going to use messenger RNA to end pandemics in 60 days. That was in 2012. And then in 2017, the Johns Hopkins uh, Biosecurity Group holds the SPARS pandemic in 2017 and says it's going to be a coronavirus. Well, now we realize that NIH grants and research was done to make the coronavirus. It was going on. And then uh, in 2019 was event 201 which was planning out exactly how the social media would be used to try to force mass vaccination, et cetera. It all happened. The difference is, Rebecca, I don't know about you and me, 
uh, uh, you or I can tell you for myself, I wasn't paying attention to all those events. I had no idea those were going on. So I was blindsided by COVID. It's not like I saw this coming. The difference is now we see disease X coming. It's coming right at us. They're telling us about it. And so people now, I think, are on high alert. Right. And so what can we do to prepare just to keep paying attention? And I mean, it is kind of nice that they uh, broadcast their playbook, I guess. Well, they did before. Nobody was paying attention. Well, people said, well, what could be released? And there are papers written on this now. Almost certainly it's going to be another virus. It's probably going to be, you know, an infectious uh, RNA uh, virus uh, like COVID. And uh, I I can tell you what's going to work is virucidal nasal sprays and washes. Every household should be outfitted with with a dilute iodine nasal spray or the know-how how to make one just using a you know, a bottle of generic uh, betadine, a few drops in some salt water will work. Commercial preparations, Cofix RX, uh, betadine, even xylitol-based products can be used uh, both acutely and chronically. You can add iodine to them like clear. And then scoper Listerine. And when someone gets one of these disease X viruses, boy, you do this every four hours and knock down the amount of virus that's in the nose and mouth so the body's own immune system can fight it off. The worst thing to do is have a sore throat for three or four days and then have nasal congestion and then let the virus invade the body. That's been a disaster. We should have never done that with COVID. I personally learned about this way too late. I'm so glad I know about it now. There's over 20 studies, high quality, large randomized trials. It works every time. So it's gonna work for COVID, RSV, influenza, and disease X. Beyond that, uh, the threat with any type of disease X is not really the viral infection, but what's called secondary bacterial pneumonia. Something, once the, the lungs and the, the tracheobronchial tree are damaged, then the bacteria there really causes significant secondary pneumonia. Now, in the Spanish flu, for instance, people didn't die of the virus. They died of secondary staphylococcal pneumonia. So we need antibiotics. And one of the solutions brought forward, I mentioned I've been a critic, but I've also been a provider of solutions. I do advise the wellness company as the chief scientific officer. We actually have kits. One could actually have a a emergency kit. There's also a pandemic kit. And they have supplies in it, including these critical drugs and with a guidebook. And there's even a telemedicine consult. So you know, if, if tomorrow somebody dropped up anthrax on the United States, I hope everybody has a wellness company kit because in there is the method by which we could actually treat anthrax if it develops. Wow. All right. What is uh, shifting gears? You know, I get this is another question I get a lot is, you know, I have, a, you know, my teenagers, there, I have one kiddo that is just deeply passionate. I feel like they have a, you know, a bent towards science and medicine. And I feel like they would just make a tremendous, you know, medical provider as they grow up, but they're concerned about, you know, they've raised their children unvaccinated and, you know, the, the vaccine requirements for medical students are, are hard to avoid. So do you have, and I'm talking beyond just the COVID vaccine. I mean, here in Texas, we kind of solved that problem. I mean, it was couple years late and it just was very specific to the COVID jabs. And so looking in the more broader picture of medical students and their requirements, do you have, what is your best advice for someone that is thinking about entering medical school? Well, I want people to know that the medical societies are not in agreement on this. The Association of American Physicians and Surgeons in 2020 issued a consensus that said we shouldn't have any vaccine mandates, none. None of the vaccines were sufficiently safe or effective to ever mandate. And the vaccines, none of them make the workplace healthier. Uh, They don't effectively stop transmission. People have even said the polio virus, no. Even on the CDC's website, they say the polio vaccine doesn't stop transmission. So vaccines have been carried too far. There shouldn't be any mandates. And you're right, there's vaccine ideology. Some medical schools have just extended this. They say, listen, we believe in this on faith and you have to take these vaccines. I'm aware of an osteopathic medical school in Kansas City who uh, there was a completely unvaccinated uh, applicant. He got in 
And uh, they said, well, take these vaccines. He said, I'm exempt. I'm not taking vaccines, whatever. And they, they literally discharged him. They said, get out. Uh, we believe in vaccines. If you don't believe in vaccines, then you're a threat to you know, human health in our medical school. So I think it's going to be case-by-case basis. Texas, uh, case, states like Texas look more attractive. As people know, Texas has banned mandates by hospitals, medical schools, and other institutions. So COVID's off the table if people don't want to take it, you know, with great relief. And we're down to, you know, other routine uh, vaccines. Now, uh, full disclosure, I'm fully vaccinated prior to COVID. I took every vaccine. I counted up all the vaccines in my body. I I took 69 shots, including mandatory annual flu shots, when I arrived at uh, medical school, my MMR titers weren't high enough, so I took more MMRs. As a child, I took the original polio vaccines. They failed, so I took more polio vaccines, smallpox vaccines. You know, so I, I almost look at this now. Listen, I did my job. I, I kind of took all these vaccines, and thank, thankfully, I can't discern any side effects. But that's not true of others. And uh, I'll tell you one thing. If someone's had a reaction to a prior vaccine, they should not take another one. If people have known allergies to polyethylene glycol, for instance, and there are well-described IgE-mediated reactions to even influenza shots, they shouldn't take them. But AAPS says, listen, you shouldn't have mandates anyway. They, they shouldn't exist. So I'd encourage young applicants to explore early the feasibility of just uh, exempting out of these vaccine requirements, keeping themselves safe. We have you know, at least five studies now showing going unvaccinated through life in, in the modern era has actually better outcomes than trying to find find the childhood vaccine schedule. And they could even point to the the September 2023 guidance from the World Council for Health, you know, another kind of WHO organization that says for all childhood vaccines right now, we should actually pause given concerns regarding vaccine safety, uh, uncertain associations with um, uh, allergic diseases, uh, the rise of various food allergies, neuropsychiatric disorders, etc., very good. Well, and I just want to, um, you know, speak a little bit towards your kind of evolution over the last three years towards the childhood vaccines. I mean, I remember even our first um, speaking event together, uh, you talked about how you were still getting your flu shots every year. And I, the whole audience, I remember, kind of gasped, you know. And then well, you know, let me let me just say, I wasn't getting the flu shot because, you know, I thought it was good for my health. I was getting the flu shot because I was told that, you know, I was going to get kicked off of staff privileges right. if I didn't get a flu shot. You know, typically a call would come on New Year's Eve and said, listen, you know, you better get a flu shot today. Otherwise, you can't admit patients to the hospital. That's how regimented it was. Um, and, and, you know, I, I previously looked at the vaccine schedule uncritically. I just yeah. didn't question it. And I am questioning it now. I've reviewed things very carefully. I'm very disappointed in what I've learned on even conventional vaccine safety and the very, very poor efficacy of uh, the conventional vaccines and the lack of clinical indication and medical necessity. We're not facing uh, diphtheria pandemics or or um, pertussis, uh, influenza. You know, I've never even tested for influenza. In my life, it's never been a clinical concern. You know, why am I taking these vaccines? So the last few years, I've actually not taken any vaccines, which is wonderful. I filled out an exemption for influenza, said I don't want to take it, and um, you know, I'm certainly not going to take an RSV vaccine. Um, I've never even considered RSV as a possibility. In the clinical trials, you know, adults over 60, less than one percent ever get RSV. And what we've seen is uh, the development of what almost like a vaccine mania, like an ideology. We hear the word vaccine morning, noon, and night. People are encouraged to go into CVS or Walgreens and get uh, COVID, influenza, and RSV vaccines. And now we've learned they're not free. Uh, mm-hmm. The RSV vaccine is 200 to $300. So um, I think we're going to see low uptake of these um, RSV vaccines in pregnant women uh, from 32 to 36 weeks. Uh, that's uh, been proposed, actually strongly promoted. Fewer than 10% of women are doing it. And I think it's wise because already there's been a signal of the vaccines triggering uh, premature labor. Mm. Uh, a greater concern is that monoclonal antibodies have been added to the vaccine schedule. Bayfortis, which is a monoclonal antibody against RSV, 
And so newborns are given this on uh, given this on day one, 0.5 cc's, uh, uh, without really any clinical indication, no medical necessity, and no long-term safety data. We have no idea what's this going to do to the baby's immune system. They're supposed to get another full cc injection at eight months or over five kilograms. Uh, now there's emerging data suggesting this is going to prompt resistant strains of RSV. It's going to make RSV worse now in childhood. So I'm advising uh, both young people, pregnant women, and older people, no RSV vaccine, no Bay Fortis. Um, let's, let's stay natural on this. RSV is very easy to treat with nebulizers and um, if, you know, if need be advanced therapy, which we have. We actually have monoclonal antibodies we can use for acute treatment. And um, that's where we are right now. It's been a great update. We're going to have to leave it here. But thank you so much for having me on the program. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to impart the the number of people that I said, just tell Dr. McCullough that he's my hero. I just want to make sure that you go off on your day today saying with a spring in your step, knowing that Team TFBC and all of our supporters just want to thank you for being brave, for being bold, for being outspoken, and uh, just being... Um, you know, a true example of putting your life on the line for the cause. So thank you and God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Shot Callers podcast. Please, if you found value in this content, rate us and share the podcast with a friend. It's a great way to get the message out and to empower everyone to make informed decisions. Until next time, never forget, we are the Shot Callers.